Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. My name is John. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, John. Uh, my sober date is July 4th, 2010. Um, I'll start off with the, the typicals. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor, and I sponsor men in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it's been a while since I, I told my story. There was a time before the pandemic where I was going into ADAPT in Reading and on a monthly basis, so I would be recounting my story. I'd bring other men in there to share their stories. So it was, it was, I could almost do it in my sleep. Um, but it's not really the case. So uh, even though I'm grateful that Brian has asked me to speak, and Brian's relatively new to, to AA, but he's learned an important lesson. If you're going to ask someone to speak, you do it in front of other AAs for maximum <laughs> guilt and shame, just in case they say no. So kudos, Brian. Uh, but in my head all day, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll try to be as honest as I can. In my head all day, I've been whining. Wah. I don't want to go speak, right? Wow, I've got other things to do. Um, and the reality is, uh, for a long time, fear ran my life, um, even as much as alcohol did. And so, and it's not so much that I was afraid to come up and tell my story, because I've, I've told it before. I've been around for a little while. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's just kind of my base character. I've, I've still got the isms and they still sometimes uh, affect the way I perceive things. So I am grateful to be here tonight. And the, and the uh, I usually say a simple prayer before I start out, and that's I, I ask God to enlighten my mind and my thinking that I might be useful to him and to others. And it's, that, it's really that simple. Because the other thing I realized uh, really in the last hour is, so earlier today it was all about me, but this, me coming up and speaking isn't about me. It's about carrying the message of, of recovery. It's about carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the next sick and suffering alcoholic. Bill and Bob learned that very quickly once they were together, um, that both for their own welfare and for the next suffering alcoholic, they needed, they needed to start um, reaching out. So, uh, so with that, I'll get to my story. So I, I typically start my story in the middle. Um, I start with the last day I drank. So my sober days is July 4th. Uh, 2010, so July 3rd. Uh, so I woke up in an apartment that I had not been, I had not paid rent on in months. Um, I had $80 in my pocket. Uh, I hadn't really been employable for about two years. Uh, it had been two years of, of scorched earth drinking and, and drug use. I'll touch on the drugs, but I won't spend a lot of time on it. Um, I had been doing that with my wife. My wife had left, though, even in the insanity of our of our literally daily, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, other than just a, an alcohol and drug-fueled nightmare, she had even realized it was too much. So she had, she had packed her bags in May, and, and she had left. So in the days leading up to that day, I had contemplated suicide several times. Uh, I didn't own a gun, 
and I was afraid of heights, so my plan was to walk out into moving traffic. But what if I didn't die? What if I hurt someone else? Um, what if I killed someone else and I didn't die? Uh, and in the end, I couldn't scare up the courage to do it, thankfully, because um, I'm here tonight sober. So, so that morning when I woke up, uh, I decided I was going to walk next door to the convenience store, grab a couple of quarts of beer, get a buzz on, and figure this all out. Right? That was literally my plan. Um, and a very strange thing happened. So I grabbed the two quarts of beer, uh, I started drinking, and about halfway through the first one, I literally could not swallow another drop. I felt as though my abdomen was going to explode. Now, I had been consuming massive quantities of alcohol um, for two years straight. And that was the last thing I had to numb the pain and to make it all go away, right? There, wasn't, there were no more pills available, the drugs, no money for the drugs. There was nothing else to make it go away, but at least I could get a buzz on. And now I couldn't even consume enough alcohol to get drunk. And it was that moment where I realized I was really in trouble, right? There was a lot of evidence that I had been in trouble for a long time, but at that moment I saw it. So uh, I called my family. I had siblings that had been trying to get me back into treatment. Um, I'd done a 28-day treatment in between my wife leaving and, and that, that moment. I had done a 28-day treatment. It was, it was horrific. I was... Uh, I literally, I think I was in almost acute withdrawal for the entire 28 days because I had been taking m massive amounts of pills for years. So, um, so I, I reached out to my, my siblings. Uh, they had been looking at a, 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 a well-known facility here in Pennsylvania called Karen. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it. And uh, that day, they, they made the phone calls, and I made the phone call, and... My brother came out and helped me pack, do laundry, because I was not capable of doing anything myself. And I remember as I was packing, because I had been sober before, and I'll get to the beginning of the story. But I remember as I was packing that night for rehab, um, the thought came to mind that I could not do it my way this time. That millions of people that had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous had gotten and stayed sober couldn't be wrong, and I, and I, and I, had, to, I had to try it their way. Now, I couldn't hold a coherent thought in my head at that point in time, so that wasn't me. Um, and I held on to that. So, so I surrendered, right? And in some small way, to the best of my ability, I practiced the first, second, and third step, right? Um, I realized that I was powerless and, and life was unmanageable. I became open to the idea that something could be different, and with help, I packed for treatment. And then the next day, my brother drove me here to Pennsylvania. Right? I surrendered my will to a treatment program. Um, I like to highlight that only because I find there are a lot of ways that, that these principles manifest in our life that people, the simple ways, that people don't talk about all that often. Because that was, that was always my confusion. I would hear wonderful things from speakers and people that shared in meetings, but my mind said, okay, that sounds great. But what does that actually look like in my life? What does the manifestation of that look like on a daily basis in the small things? Um, so I'll go to the beginning now, right? And the reason I start in the middle is because it ended the way it started. So my first drunk, um, I had an older brother. He was three years older. And I had two friends. We were 13, 14 years old. And we hear about this drinking thing and getting drunk and how cool it was. 
And so we wanted to experience. So my older brother agreed he'd, he'd, you know, he'd buy us each a quart of beer. And uh, we were just going to walk around the neighborhood and drink it. Uh, it was horrible. The taste was absolutely horrible. I had tasted beer when I was about eight years old. And I thought it was disgusting. And I'm never going to drink this stuff. So, because I was, a, a, a big part of my story is I was a beer drinker. So I, so I forced myself to get through the taste and I had the exact opposite uh, experience that I had with my last drink was that when I got halfway through that quart of beer, I started to feel the effect. And everything changed for me. By the time I finished that quart of beer, I, I, and I have a terrible memory, right, which is part of the reason why I sometimes I wonder about what's going to come out when I tell my story. But I can remember as if it were yesterday, I had the distinct thought that this is the way I want to feel for the rest of my life, right? Maybe I couldn't do it when I was going to school. Maybe I couldn't do it every moment of my life. But this is the way I wanted to feel because life had been horribly uncomfortable up until that point. Um, I, was, I was just generally a pretty uncomfortable kid. Um, I was shy. Uh, it seemed like everyone else knew what they were doing, but inside I was just horribly confused and afraid. The home I grew up in was pretty chaotic. Neither of my parents drank or smoked. They didn't do anything, right? They were both educated school teachers, but they fought every day. My memory is it was like a war zone. And so um, even though I, I certainly don't blame my childhood at home, certainly for my alcoholism, right? But even for being uncomfortable, I think that was just a natural part of my character. Uh, it certainly contributed to it um, because I saw uh, a, a lot of, of, of you know, I, my understanding is that's part of how we're supposed to learn about our human interactions is from our parents. And, and it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, not a good lesson. So, so when I felt that, you know, the, the literature talks about that sense of ease and comfort, I don't like to, to repeat the exact words from the literature a lot, but, but certainly that one, that one applies. When I felt that sensation and all of that went away and I could talk to my friends and I could make jokes and I just felt a part of, it was magical. Um, now, the second time I got drunk, I drank almost a pint of rum. It was, I don't know, six months later, something like that. The second time, uh, I drank almost a pint of rum. I blacked out. I vomited. And I had a horrible hangover the next day. But the one I held on to for the next off and on 25 years was the first one, right? The mental obsession was set in place. I didn't know it at the time, obviously. There were lots and lots of, of red flags uh, that I could not see. But now that I look back, they are, they are very obvious. Um, I was an alcoholic from the first drunk. My mother's father was an alcoholic. He died you know, of heart complications related to his alcoholism. I believe this is a genetic thing. Um, I, I believe I was an alcoholic from, from the start. So, um, so the fuse was lit. There's a lot of instances, and it's funny because last night I was thinking a little bit about this. I'm like, all right, I haven't, I haven't told my story in a while. All right, do I, do I have some, you know, examples of, you know, of what alcohol thinking and behavior looks like? And as I started to think back through my drinking, I was like, oh, I've got a lot. I, an hour, forget, forget an hour. I could go on all night. So, um, so I'll just kind of go through the timeline and see and see where we are. I don't want to spend the whole time on the drinking, but but. We've got some time. I'm supposed to talk for the whole time. Okay, so we'll we'll get into it. So um, 
So another early warning sign. So uh, I didn't have a lot of access, uh, access to alcohol. So I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I didn't start to drink all the time. My parents didn't drink, so there wasn't a lot of liquor in the house. But they did have this cabinet with bottles that were three quarters full that hadn't been touched probably in God knows how long. So I started to sneak in, into those once in a while. And there was one night, I, I guess I was about 15. I was particularly uncomfortable. Um, and so I grabbed a bottle of whiskey out of the cabinet. And I used to like to walk at night. One of my other escapes was walking. I'd leave the house at midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'd walk for two or three hours. So I went out, but I grabbed a bottle, of, a bottle of whiskey, and I started drinking it. And I got pretty good and lit up. And there was a shopping mall. It was the Hangout. It's called, I'm, I'm originally from uh, Long Island, New York. Right? It's called Roosevelt Field, just in case we have any New Yorkers here. That was the big shopping mall. And so I'm wandering, I'm, I'm wandering around the outside of the shopping mall, drunk, and I find the delivery tunnel on the backside of the mall where, you, where the trucks would drive down and went underneath the whole mall and deliveries. So I decide I'm going to wander in there, and I find this. It was much bigger than a pickup truck. It was a utility truck, orange, with an orange light on the top. And I look inside, and the keys are in the ignition. And so I decide I'm going to get in it and start driving it around. And I did. I was drunk at 15, driving this orange utility truck with the light on down the center of my town at 3 o'clock in the morning. And somehow I did not get arrested. I don't know how. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. Getting caught doing that today, I can't even imagine. Uh, so, again, another, another uh, early warning sign, red flag. Um, fast forward to a few years later, uh, I, I, I liked cars. I'm a car guy. I, I'd liked them since I was young. So I used to, you know, my first car, I, I towed home. I bought it for $200. I towed it home. It wasn't even running. And I had my friend who was older, you know, start teaching me things and got it running. So I was, well, by the time I was 17, you could get your driver's license. I was ready to go. So, um, my first DUI was the age of 18. Wow. I thought I turned my alarms off. Um, my first DUI was at the age of 18. Oh, I checked from, I checked from seven to eight. I better, I better turn them off, okay. Um, so my first DUI was at age 18. I had, had an argument with my girlfriend, so of course the answer was grab a couple of six packs, get good and lit up, go and drive real fast. Um, that was, I, I like to drink and drive. It's a horrible thing, it is, it is an atrocious thing. Uh, but that was, that was part of my deal, so. Um, I got frustrated because people were going slow in front of me, and I passed them on the shoulder on the right, and a, and a, and a police officer saw me, and, and I got arrested. So this was probably 1983. It was a, a slap on the wrist time. It was 90-day suspension of my license. Uh, had to pay a fine. You know, family was, ah, you got arrested. So, um, you know, there was a, a little bit of guilt and shame, but it certainly didn't make an impression on me. Now, curiously, though, um, I guess that the government was starting to try to intervene on, on DUIs at that time. So they sent us to the local college, a whole bunch of us, 50 or 80 of us, and they put us in a room and we watched videos. We had to answer a questionnaire. And I was sure I was going to answer this questionnaire correctly because you either were done after that or you had to go into treatment, you know, into outpatient treatment. And somehow I got, I got the questions wrong because I had to go to a year of outpatient treatment. So, um, <laughs> so those poor counselors, right? Because the idea that I was going to stop drinking was not, never entered my mind. And, and as I look back now, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember probably one of the last couple of sessions, they brought me in the office and they were trying to 
desperately convinced me that I had a, at least that I had a drinking problem, right? I remember them hammering away at me for a year saying, if you're drinking and it causes problems, you have a drinking problem, right? <laughs> for a year, not that it did, I was not hearing it. So uh, most times I would, I would pick up a six pack on the way home uh, from, from the counseling and I would drink, right? That was like standard procedure, so. So I started to work as an auto mechanic. Um, the, the basic routine through, through most of my, my 20s was, um, you know, work all day. The work days were long, eight to six, um, sometimes on Saturday. Pick up a, a six pack on the drive home, slam three, take a shower because I was filthy, slam three more, watch some TV, go to bed. Like that was, that was my routine. On the weekends, there'd be, you know, other drinking. There weren't a lot of drugs early on in, in, in my uh, story. So, uh, but when I was 25, I had an opportunity. I was working in a small auto repair shop, and, and he, he, it was one owner, one auto body guy, and one mechanic, me. And he would do the auto body in the back of the shop, and, and we, had, we had a couple of car spots to do the repairs. So he wanted to expand. He bought the building next door. He was going to take the auto body up there. And he, he gave me an opportunity to buy the business from him. So I did, right? You know, Bill's story. The drive for success was on. 25, I'm going to own a business. And... Um, a curious thing happened. So it went from, you know, 50 plus hours a week to 80 plus hours a week of working, right? Because I was, I started out, I didn't have any employees, it was me. So, um, you know, workaholism became my new thing. And I realized I couldn't really drink at night and have the energy to do all that work. So I, I stopped drinking cold for six months. Um, it, I don't even remember it really being an issue. I was motivated because I had another priority. Um, but again, it was untreated alcoholism. It didn't matter. Like, the, the drink is just a symptom, right? That's what the literature tells us. So, so I worked real hard, and I finally got a hold. I felt like I got a hold on the business. I got a, a, one full-time employee, one part-time and, you know, I started to have money in the bank and I didn't have to sweat it as much. Um, so I felt confident. So uh, my, my girlfriend at the time was away for the weekend. So I decided I was going to enjoy myself for the weekend. And I went out with a couple of friends to a bar, um, got a buzz on, didn't, didn't, didn't get super drunk. But on my, on my drive home, I found this woman literally laying in the middle of the road outside of a bar. And I thought she was going to get killed. So I stopped and I helped her off the road and I went into the bar and nobody, you know, they, they were like, everyone was having their, their party on. So I decided I was going to rescue her in my drunk, drunken state, not crazy, but drunken state. And I was going to drive her home and I was trying to get her to explain where she lived. And I went back away from my house towards the bar I was at and drove right past the police precinct and she was trying to jump out of the car at the moment, and I went right through a red light in front of an officer. So, um, poetic justice, to be honest, right? Uh, so, um, there was my second DUI. And this time it was a little different, right? One year revocation of your driver's license, in order to get it back, you had to complete a drug and alcohol program. Um, 
So I'm a business owner. I'm supposed to, um, I repair people's cars. I'm driving people's cars every day. Now I have no driver's license, lots of guilt and shame. I don't want to tell anybody. Um, and from not drinking and working all the time, just the guilt and shame just fueled my alcoholism. So that, that was it. It just, the next two and a half years was a, was a, a, a spiral down. I tried to hold it together for a while, but the, you know, the lies and the guilt just kept getting to me. And eventually, I, I, at first, I couldn't make the business payments. Then I couldn't even make the rent payments. And he finally said, listen, just, just, give, just vacate the building and get out. I'm going to get someone in and, you know, and we'll call it, we'll call it quits. So after three years, um, I, was, I was out. Uh, and part of the reason why that's important is that last weekend I was in the business. I decided I was going to go out and go to Good Load On and, and some... Some woman in Queens, I was driving around, didn't even know what I was doing. She was trying to hitch, I guess trying to hitchhike a ride home back to her apartment. So uh, I'll pick her up, right? I'll, I'll, I'll rescue this person. And, and she goes back to this little apartment. She invites me in. There's four or five people in there, tiny room, like 12 by 14 room. There's a, literally a baby on the bed while these people are hanging out and smoking some weird stuff that I had no idea what it was. Um, and I kept asking them to try it. And they said, oh no, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. And uh, eventually I did. It, uh, it was crack cocaine and that became my second love. Um, something happened to my brain that night and, and the sensation that I experienced immediately changed me, right? It was different than the alcohol, but it was profound. Um, and so uh, that, that brought things to a whole, a whole different level. Um, so some events took place. So uh, shortly after, I, I, I ended up getting a job and I was trying to hold things together. Um, shortly after that, my mother was diagnosed with, uh, with, with cancer, colon cancer. Uh, since 1992. Uh, I decided I'm going to rescue her again. And I moved back in with my parents. I gave up my apartment, mostly because I was having trouble affording the rent. I gave up my apartment, moved back in, decided I'm going to be a caretaker. And I'd, I'd, I'd be pretty good for a couple of weeks, and then I would disappear. And that became the cycle for the next two and a half years. Um, but eventually, the cancer, uh, the cancer started to really get a hold of her. And um, those last months, as, as, as she was getting ready to die, my, my disease was just... I was circling the hospital. My sisters were there. Um, they were in the hospital. She was dying. They called me. They said she was dying. You need to get here. And I was circling the hospital, sucking down alcohol, trying to scare up the courage to go in there and watch, watch my mother die. And, and, and I didn't make it. Right? She was gone by the time I got there. Uh, I was in and out of a blackout the day she was buried. And I, I don't have many recollections. She had had some pain meds. By that time, I was I was popping whatever I could put in my body to, to make it go away. And so um, what made things matter, what made matters worse was she had left all of us, all the children, a small inheritance. So now uh, there was no need to work, at least for a short time. It wasn't, it wasn't like buy a house money, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't nothing. So, um, so for the next, I don't even know. Next couple of years, she died in June of 1995. The next couple of years were just, you know, it was game on. I ended up in my first treatment in 1995, in, in the fall of 1995, right? Because I had, I, I, um, 
I blacked out and totaled the car. Uh, it was this windy road with huge trees where there were big houses. And I have no recollection of it happening, but I came out of a blackout sitting on a curb. And this, the right side of the car had been pushed in all the way to the center console. So if it had been the other direction, I would have been killed. If someone was in the passenger seat, they would have been killed. Um, please let me go. I don't, they called me a cab. I have no idea why. Um, but shortly after that, I ended up in my first treatment center. Um, that's another, it's another kind of red flag moment. So about two weeks into that treatment, I, I, um, I was in a counseling group and it suddenly became clear to me that these people were talking to me about never being able to safely drink alcohol again, right? And that's the first time that message had ever gotten through to me. And I was shocked. Um, and I remember they, there was a walking track out, outside the front of the building, and that was the only thing I could do to keep myself sane. I would just do laps. And I remember walking around that, that, that track, and I had the distinct thought again, that, that one I can remember. If I can't drink, I'd rather be dead. I saw absolutely no point to living if I did not have that escape, that release, um, that thing that made it all go away for a time. Um, and again, thankfully, that, that the opposite is true now. Uh, today, I'd rather somebody put a bullet in my head than go back to that insanity. Um, that's the first treatment. So it uh, didn't stick. Uh, about two weeks out of that treatment, I was actually in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, right, because I started to go to meetings. And, but I, I had, it, again, there's a line from the end of Bill's story where he talks about the man that committed suicide in his house. And generally, I think it says, he couldn't or wouldn't see our way of life. And to me, that's a powerful statement, only because it, it, is, it is the mix of that that keeps us from entering into a program of recovery. Some of it is, is willful. I'm, I won't. I'm not going to do this. But I, as I look back, I was blind. I could not see the reality of my, my situation. I couldn't. Right. So couldn't or wouldn't. It's it's like that is the crux of the problem. So. So I was in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and halfway through the meeting, my mental obsession just said, that's it. You're done. And I walked out. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't raise my hand. I walked out and went right to a liquor store and started drinking again. Um, So I'll try to fast forward because I'm yeah, I'm I'm going for the two hour mark for sure. So. uh, So. It's 1997. Um, I found some people that like to use drugs all the time, like me. So I was hanging out with them. And um, I met this woman that used to, she, was, she called herself a fetcher, right? So she, she wasn't really a dealer. She, she would go get drugs for her friends, and then she'd get some. And I started driving for her, um, you know, because I like driving, even though I still didn't have my driver's license back from seven years earlier, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I forgot to mention that part, right? Um, but I'm driving and I'm drinking and I'm, you know, you know, running back and forth with small amounts of drugs and getting high. So, um, so that woman and I start a relationship, right? It's um, it's a crack cocaine love affair, and so uh, we start a relationship, and um, shortly after that. Uh, I sold the last asset I had. I had I'd bought in a brand new car somewhere. Actually, it was, it was with some of that inheritance money. 
and I sold it and, and I put a small pot, smaller pile of cash in my hands and we literally were staying in hotels and going crazy for, for three months. Um, and then uh, one day I got pulled over and uh, she was in the car with me and I had, I had I developed this nasty little habit of giving my friends information out when I got pulled over and telling them, because he'd been a close friend, right? What a great friend I was. Um, he'd been the guy I'd been working, he was the auto body guy in that shop from years ago. He and I had remained close friends. So I'd give his name, his date of birth, his address, I knew it all. So the police officer is just about to walk away, because I had done that three or four times in the last two years. He turns around and he says, what's your middle initial? And I froze. I didn't know it. And I blurted out a letter and it was wrong. And get out of the car, please. So um, put cuffs on me. He arrested me. Uh, I told him you know, who I really was, thinking, oh, if I just tell him the truth that I don't have a license, maybe this will all go away. No. <laughs> he, runs my, he runs my actual name because I had had a warrant out for my arrest. There was this, a misdemeanor drug charge somewhere in all that chaos. So uh, he runs my name, so I'm going to jail, right? And now I'm not going to jail overnight. Um, because this warrant had been out for a little while, and now I'm looking at a, a year of county jail time. So I get uh, another moment of clarity. So about, so I had spent overnight in lockup, but going, even going to county jail is a whole different experience, right? Um, so you get a, plastics, a plastic cup with a plastic spoon and a toothbrush, and maybe a little toothpaste, I don't remember, and a roll of toilet paper and a roll-out mattress, and that's it. And that was my reality. And I was in a dorm-style um, jail, which is an 80 by 60-foot cinder block room with 80 cots. So, um, yeah, that was, I, 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 I was not ready for that. But about two weeks in, right, reality started to set in. And again, there seems to be something about that two-week mark. And the thought came to mind that I had had lots of opportunities in life, but here I was sitting in jail, right? And this is where my best thoughts and actions had gotten me. And then maybe I needed to take a look at that and maybe try to do something differently. Shortly after that, my attorney had, had reached out to something that was new, a drug court program. So this is 1997, Those, they, they were pretty new. One of the first ones in the country. I got involved with that after about, after 36, day, 36 days in county lockup, I went to treatment. If you ever want to appreciate going to rehab, go to jail first because that was like going on vacation um, and I was grateful to be there and I started to buy into this and I went to a sober house after that and um, I started to buy into this and then something happened. Uh, so I had a couple of relapses that first year but my, my original sober date was May 10th of 1998. And I was probably about nine months into that, and I'd gotten a sponsor. Um, and he would, he would say wonderful things in the meeting, right? He would quote the literature. But he didn't seem to act that way with his family. And, and one time, outside a meeting, after a meeting, his wife would go to the meetings, right? She was in AA. And she's standing across the parking lot. And he objectively, this is true. It wasn't just my perception. He said the most horrible, demeaning thing about her that I, don't, I won't even repeat in front of other male AA members. And I said, this guy's full of crap, which was true. 
But I continue to say, everybody in AA is full of crap, and I'm going to do it my way, right? So when I landed in Karen in 2010, they had me do a, a, a relapse process timeline, right? And I thought, so I remained sober for seven years, even though I did it my way. I don't suggest that because eventually I drank and I still had untreated alcoholism. But when I did the timeline, I said, oh, the, the relapse really began when I, started, stopped, when I stopped going to meetings at, at three, three years in. And uh, this, uh, this, this very sharp counselor said, well, John, that's nice, but we find that, that it really starts before you stop going to meetings, right? So I'd gone in there, I'd gone in, right, you know, I'm in treatment, but I'd been sober 10 years, right? I, I hadn't had to drink alcohol in 10 years, right? And then they tell me, well, sucking down handfuls of pills doesn't really count as sobriety, so I don't, I'd been sober seven years, right? Well, okay, relapse process, three years, right? And now she tells me, no, you got to look further. I was pissed, but she was absolutely right. And it was only through doing that work and looking at that literally my relapse process started at nine months sober, even though I didn't take a drink, when I decided I was going to do this my way. Um, and it's important to understand because, uh, you know, sometimes it can be quick and someone can have a think, and an overwhelming compulsion, and they can pick up a drink, or sometimes it can take years, like it did for me. Um, so, so, blah, 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 lots of chaos of a bad sobriety, you know, not drinking. I moved in with that woman, right? We got married, right? Um, we relapsed together, right? First on vacation. Uh, so that's a, I'm a, there's, there's so much involved in my regret tour. We relapsed together. <laughs> two years of scorched earth. I could, yeah, again, it'll be two hours. Scorched earth. Um, so I landed Karen, and um, the lights start to come on, right? Uh, there was an incident, right? So I was... So I went to a month of treatment. They said, clinically, we evaluate you that you need three more months of treatment, right? And I made them explain that to me because they didn't understand. I had been sober for 10 years before. So, um, so I went to extended treatment, another three months. So I'm, I'm community leader, and uh, I'm supposed to, you know, uh, I'm supposed to lead this, this it's a patient-led group, and with all the residents, there was like 40 or 50 people, right? So I, again, I talked about fear. Fear ran my entire life, even when I was sober. I spoke once in those seven years, the first time around. I obsessed about it for a week. I thought I was going to vomit before I got there. And when it was done, I said, I'm never doing this again. So I knew fear was running my life. So one, you know, during this two-week period where I'm community leader, the, um, the staff member says, oh, you know, we've got uh, you know, Thursday community whatever, blah, 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 whatever it was called. And he goes, You're, you know, you'll be leading it, right? And I was like, oh, my God. The, the fear immediately overwhelmed me, right? And my first thought is, I can't do this, right? Because, that, that, again, that fear of other people, that fear of being different. And this, this voice, it was my voice, but it was not my voice, said, if you don't do this, you are effed. Right? Like, that is it. 
if you don't face this. And another thought came to mind, ask one of your, your close friends here in the community to do it with you. And so I did it, and I asked for help, and we did it together. Um, that was, as small as that was, that was profound, because I realized if I didn't start to face my fears of other people being different, um, I was, I was done. So um, three great months of treatment. I met a, a lot of guys there. Um, some unfortunately died not long after that treatment. Some relapsed. Um, just there was a, a group of about a dozen of us, just, just myself and another stayed sober continuously. Another man had a relapse and more consequences. Very intelligent man, attorney from Philadelphia, Joe Kay. Uh, but since those, those, last, those other consequences, um, he's remained sober. My one friend, Brendan G., he, he and I stayed close for years. We've lost touch the last few years, but that was a very important relationship with me, for me. Um, Joe was, you know, the attorney when I, when I bought my house. Uh, my wife, and, you know, my wife was living in a, a, a woman's shelter when I was going to treatment. And thankfully, by the grace of God, uh, somehow, uh, she was convinced to get into treatment as well. So she went to Karen. That was a big deal because that was a very spiritual moment for me. I won't go into it because it's a long story, but it, the, the circumstances that took place in order for that to happen were nothing short of a miracle. So, so she went, I, I finished in, in November of, of 2010 and she got in uh, just before New Year's that year. Um, and she did the same thing, four months inpatient. I went down to Washington, D.C., because that was the recommendation to go down to a sober house, right? So I spent two years down there. I'm doing okay, 15 minutes, I'm already into recovery. All right, yeah. Um, so, I spent, so I spent two years down there, and uh, I got a sponsor, right? Um, and we started working together. We were meeting on a work weekly basis. Uh, my wife was... Uh, she, she went through inpatient treatment, and, and she decided she loved this area so, so much she wanted to get an apartment here. So, again, I, I, it was scorched earth, so thank, you know, thank God for my father who was able to help us along this path because we wouldn't have been able to get this, this unbelievably good care without his financial assistance. So, um, so she got an apartment here. I'm doing my thing. And I was doing some, some – I was doing some – I was getting some outside help, right, from a therapist, right, one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, I certainly did not, I've certainly not done recovery perfectly, right? There, there has been plenty of self-will at times. So I decided that working was more important, and I couldn't really fit that counseling into my schedule. And so I'd done about three or four months, and I, and I let him know this, and I said, listen, I said, I've been sober before, right? right? I'm, I'm, I'm almost a year sober now. I said, just give it to me, right? Like, I'm not going to spend two years with you. Just, just give me everything you got. I can handle it, right? Give me, tell, tell me what you're going to tell me two years from now, but tell it to me now. <laughs> he did. And, and what he said was, because he knew the whole dynamic, right, with my wife and everything. He said, well, here's what I think. Because in my mind, I'm like, 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 it's any day my wife and I are getting back together, right? I'm moving, I'm, she's moving down there. He said, I don't think you and your wife should even consider reconciling for, 
for a year. And you should consult professionals at that time. And if they don't think it's right, you should wait another year. <laughs> and I walked home from that session like I had just been hit in the face with a brick because I asked for it and he gave it to me, right? Because my, what I want is still what I want. And, and I had no idea just how deep the dysfunction went in mine and my wife's relationship, right? So meet an addiction, stop using but not really recovery, two years of scorched earth, married, relationship, you know, living in different states. It was, um, uh, and wouldn't you know, he was almost dead on, right? So um, we ended up, I, I, I did a pretty good job in Washington, D.C., but it, it didn't, it didn't, you know, something happened and um, that job ended. And, uh, and I was trying to make the decision as to whether or not she would move down there to the Washington, D.C. area or I would move up here. And, and that, that job ending made the decision for me. So that was, that was helpful. And uh, so, what I, so I moved up here and we, we moved back in together in uh, November of 2012. So it was uh, almost exactly two years after I had gotten out of inpatient treatment. Um, and she was out for about a year and a half at that point. So he was dead on. He was dead on, right? So... And this is the part that's going to get rough. So you guys are going to have to bear with me. So I, um, someone I trusted very much, who had been one of my counselors in treatment, right, who was in the recovery community here, made a suggestion that I, I call this guy named Brian Holstead, right, because he runs a local sober house, and he's always looking for good workers. So um, I called him up. I started volunteering. Then I started working there. And I, I ended up working there off and on for about two years. And the reason that's important is because um, even though I, I didn't always agree with the way he was doing things, I learned more about alcoholism and, and addiction, just addiction, right, in those two years working for him than I, don't, I, I, could, I probably could have possibly learned anywhere else. And it's not that I know everything or I'm some genius, but some of the basic things that he taught me have not only helped me, they have helped me help others. Um, and so that was an amazing experience. I ended up leaving there eventually, and uh, um, he one time he would say things because you know the guys would all be talking about you know, you know, well I used to use you know I'd use drugs, but now there's sex issues and then the gambling, and I'm on my phone all the time, all this different stuff. And, you know, you know how do how do how do we how do we address all these different things? And he would say it's not all these things; it's one thing, right? It's loss of control. That's what, that's, what, that's what is characteristic of all of these things. It's a loss of control. Um, and here in Alcoholics Anonymous, our, our solution is uh, the program of recovery um, and, and being relieved of, of the obsession to drink by the grace of God. So I learned a tremendous, tremendous amount from him, um, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful, even though I, you know, I eventually left there by my choice. I went to work for another program. It's a county program. Um, uh, it's for TASC. They had this program where uh, it was called the Warm Handoff, where you'd either, you'd either be stationed in, a, in, a, in an emergency, emergency room at Reading Hospital, or you'd, you'd be on call and you'd go to St. Joe's Hospital. And when they had someone come in that was looking for treatment or 
that they thought needed help, they would call and you would show up. Um, I remember the first time, and so they were just fine, they were restarting the on-call program at St. Joe's. And I wasn't working, so I, I ended up being like the most full-time guy. It was a 24-hour shift, and I was taking a fair amount of the shifts. But you'd be on call for 24 hours. I got the first call, and I thought I was going to vomit on my way to the hospital because there had been a little bit of training, but I, was, I had no idea what I was walking into, and I was going to walk into an emergency room with doctors and nurses that thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm here now, right? I'm going to take care of all the problems. This staff was amazing, right? They, they, I have to say, every doctor and every nurse I worked with was gracious and helpful. Um, and I made it through that first interaction, and they didn't want treatment. They, they, they were, you know, there were all kinds of weird circumstances that would come up. But um, they didn't want treatment. Uh, but I filled out the paperwork, and I got, them, you know, I got them hooked up with these recovery services that they offered. You know, it's recovery coaching. And I put my notes in the computer afterwards, and I got through it, right? I walked through the fear. I walked through the fear. Um, and that's characteristic of a lot of a lot of, a lot of, of what has happened over the last 12-plus years. I've made mistakes. My will is, has come into play in a number of different uh, circumstances that were, you know, significant. Um, but uh, thankfully, I'm still here, and, I, and I've had good guidance. I, I've, I've had a variety of different sponsors. So DC, Washington, D.C., I spent a year and a half up in Boston trying, trying to help a couple of sisters that had a lot of problems. I had my sponsor up there. Um, great home group Tuesday night men's meeting. I don't know what it is. Down in Washington, D.C., it was a Tuesday night men's meeting, too. I don't know what it is, but I guess God, you know, God's got a plan. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been amazing. I, I, you know, and I like to highlight. So when I'm sharing either at my meetings or, or, or even, um, you know, someplace like, like here, uh, it's not that I want to make it all gloom and doom and that things are bad, because it, because it isn't, right? I, I've, I've been able to do things and face fears that I never had the capacity to. Um, I'm involved in, this, in the AA service structure now, right? So I, I serve as DCM for District 66. It's a leadership role. I've been in, in the district service structure for about six years now as a GSR and different stuff. Uh, I, and I, I have very strong opinions, which I will not air here now, right? It's not the appropriate place. I always had strong opinions, but I could never arrange the thoughts and the words to express them in an appropriate or even, or even you know, um, passionate way. That's the word everyone talks about me with. Oh, you're passionate, John, right? It's a nice, yeah. It's a good word. So I've gotten, and it's not that I'm so great, but this is the type. So if I felt strongly about something and I felt that this is something that needed to be said, I've gotten up in front of a microphone in a room with literally 500 people in it and, and barked out a position that was, you know, unpopular. And I knew it was unpopular, but I said it anyway because I felt it needed to be said. And that, and, and, and God has given me that freedom and that voice. I'm not saying I'm always right, but if I feel 
passionate about something and I feel it's the right thing and I've checked in with a few people, then, then I speak up. Um, but in a leadership role in the service structure, um, I also have to understand that I can influence other people and so I've got, I've got to watch, um, I've got to be more objective. I've got to watch, watch what I say. I had, I, so we had, again, this isn't like, you know, the meeting of the round table, the, the genius minds, but the district officers came together and, and, and they, you know, they had, to, they had to view some opinions of concern and uh, I had to hear and process those concerns and I had to realize uh, I was living in a pipe dream, right? Like I was gonna wear the hat of the DCM and be the leader of the district and then on other occasions, I was gonna put on my GSR hat and burr, 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 burr at the mic, right? And voice the opinions. Yeah, that's just not right. It's just not the right thing to do. And um, again, it's self-will. It's what I think is right. And there, there's all manner of, uh, there's all manner of, um, of situations where things like that happen. So I'm gonna, this is gonna be the part. If anyone could grab me a, a couple of paper towels or tissue, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna request this just in, in case. So, cause I feel like I have to get this out. Bear with me. So, so my wife died in December of 2020 from COVID. Um, you know, one, one night she, she seemed like she was doing fine. We both got it. And then suddenly she was having trouble breathing. And a couple of days later, she's in intensive care. And a couple of days later, she's on ventilator. Um, I literally got 15 seconds to say goodbye to her because uh, they didn't want her to talk on the phone. Uh, they wanted her to breathe. And after two weeks on a ventilator, they said her organs were failing. And so um, I had to make the decision. So my sponsor came into uh, a COVID board with me to pray um, and to let go, right? And it was the most difficult thing I'd ever have to do, right? I'd been driving around the hospital while my mother died, drunk, and now I had to make the decision to end my wife's life, right? And I still question that decision today, but uh, they told me there was no hope. So uh, my sponsor was there with me, right? Because he, he had been an architect in his career, and he had he'd retired and gone and gotten his uh, master's in pastoral counseling, and, uh, and so he was well suited to do that, and he did that with me. Wearing a cloth mask in a COVID board in December of 2020, he came in to support me, right? My home group members, right, it's a men's group, so it wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of crying, but there was a lot of hugging. And there was a year where I couldn't, I just couldn't share out loud because the emotion would have just flown out of me. And they let me just, and we would go to pizza and we would talk and that was fine, but in the meeting, I just couldn't speak. And they let me just be there, right? They supported me. Um, the six or seven women that my wife was closest with and, and a few of my sponsees and my brother and my sponsor, uh, I think there were 13 of us. And at her, her memorial service, again, it was the middle of COVID, was 
on what would have been our 10-year anniversary. And he said some prayers, and we circled up. And we shared, like it was a meeting, right? Uh, That was the darkest thing. My wife's death was the darkest thing I had ever experienced in my life, right? Because at least there was the drugs and alcohol, or there was the overwhelming physical pain of stopping the drugs and alcohol. But now I was stone cold sober. Um, And those first few weeks were, it was just blackness. There was the complete absence of hope or how I would move forward. At that point, we had been together for 24 years. Um, But some people that had had losses shared some things with me, and they, um, they told me that it gets lighter and my sponsor listened to me, and my home group supported me, and I had to believe that if I just went on each day that it would get better. Um, The last thing my wife would have wanted would be for me to relapse, right? How could I dishonor her her in that way? She loved Alcoholics Anonymous. She loved the women that she worked with. And so I stand here today, a little over two years after her being gone, 12 plus years sober, and I'm speaking in front of you guys, and um, there's no place else I'd rather be. And with that, that, that's it, I'll, I'll be quiet now. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.